Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Tanika Gray Valbrun. Tanika is the founder of the White Dress Project, which is an organization that works to raise awareness of fibroids and other women's health issues. Tanika herself lives with fibroids. She's going to tell us all about it. Tanika, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I'm excited to chat with you. It's such a pleasure. And we're going to be releasing this episode during Fibroid Awareness Month as well, right? Yes, which I'm so excited about because uh, through the work of the White Dress Project, we are the authors of of the legislation that went through the U.S. House. Um, So we're really always very proud of that accomplishment, as you can imagine, anything going through the U.S. House and getting legislators involved um, can be tedious. um, But we're really excited about the fact that we were able to get that passed. That's amazing. Well, we're going to get into that, but let's start at the very beginning of the story. We'd love to know about your history. Can you tell us how you first realized that you had fibroids and that you had these health issues and what steps you've since taken to control your health? Yeah, so my journey started when I was a teenager, probably about 14 or 15. And ever since I started my period, they have always been seemingly heavy. Um, I've always had really... uh, debilitating cramps. I've always had heavy bleeding, always had to go to the restroom, headaches. Um, So that's just what I thought periods were. I didn't have any concept of what heavy menstrual bleeding is or that, you know, your your pain shouldn't be this debilitating. Um, So I felt like, oh, I'm a woman. This is just how it goes down. And I just accepted it. What's interesting, I think, about my story is that my mother had fibroids, and she explained to me, you know, some of the symptoms. I saw her go through losing a set of twins to fibroids. I saw her go through a hysterectomy. Um, But when I was having my own symptoms, I don't know what happened, but it didn't click for us. Both of us were like, oh, it can't be fibroids. First of all, I was a teenager. And, you know, they're not usually uh, prominent during your teenage years. Um, So it was just interesting to me that, you know, we didn't put that together. um, But those were some of my symptoms. And I really just dealt with them until I started to become anemic, which was around age 19 or so. And I had to have my first blood transfusion. And wow, a blood transfusion because of anemia. Yes, because of low iron. And low iron contributed to the fact that I had fibroids, or because of the fibroids, I had anemia, low iron anemia. Wow. Okay. And it sounds like you said that was your first blood transfusion. So there have been subsequent transfusions as well. Yes. Unfortunately, I've had seven blood transfusions because of anemia due to fibroids. Yes. Wow. So these are totally interconnected conditions. And it's, as you say, it is very interesting that you didn't sort of put things together early on, but I guess that's also part and parcel of being a teenager and running around and working at school and, and sort of starting to live your life. And in many ways, you know, I also wonder with women's health issues in particular, you know, how early on we become aware of some of this stuff when we're not necessarily sexually active as well. Like some of this stuff doesn't really hit us until a little bit later too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Like I, I look back and in hindsight, I'm kind of like Tanika, 
going on? Why didn't you know? Why didn't you talk to mom about it? Um, but like you said, you know, you're kind of just keeping life moving. And if you have no barometer for what is considered normal, then you kind of just feel like this is my plight and my journey as a woman. Um, so I did exactly what you said. I kept it moving. I made sure that I always had pads with me. I always had a pair of leggings with me. My friends knew me as the girl that always had her backpack with her. If we went on a road trip, I was always the one who would need to stop at every rest stop because I got to pee. Mm. Um, so that just became my life. Yeah. Um, until I went to a doctor early twenties and he recommended that I get a DNC. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a very difficult conversation to have with my mom because DNCs are usually performed when you are, you know, scraping the uterus due to miscarriage or, you know, whatever else that you need to clear the uterus for. Mm-hmm. So there's this awkward conversation of, were you pregnant? Are you having sex? Like, what's yeah. going on? And it was none of those things. And at that point, I still wasn't diagnosed with fibroids. Wow. So the doctor knew to give you a DNC, but like didn't even suggest looking further to see if maybe there was a reason for that? Right. Like, go for it. Yeah. It's like they just skipped to the procedure and didn't even ask you about your history or, or dig deeper for a diagnosis for you, which is tantamount to malpractice, if you ask me. Exactly. I would agree. And, and the thought is that um, I, I, I guess I went to the doctor because of the heavy menstrual bleeding. So I think their reaction is just to treat that and not look into anything further. Which makes you, it actually begs the question, is it less expensive within the medical system the way it is designed here in the States, which we'll also get into, you know, is it less expensive for a doctor to suggest a DNC than to actually work toward a diagnosis and future preventive measures? Yeah. And I would argue that maybe, you know, it's, it's particular doctors. And, and that's why we always advocate for choosing a doctor is such an individual process. And it, and it really has to be akin to dating, really, like you've got to find the one. And if, if one doctor is not the one, like move on, sister, there are others. Um, so that's why we always advocate for that, because it's such, such an important process along your journey to make sure that you have that partner in health with you. I really like the, that you use the word partner uh, yeah. there because as you say, it is, and, and it is just like dating. It's that interview process. It's that sort yeah, of absolutely. those few initial meetings. You see if there's a spark, but you're absolutely right. I'm actually curious to know as well, because of the connection with your mom, how old was your mom when she got diagnosed with fibroids for her to be aware enough of your symptoms? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm of Jamaican heritage. I was born in Jamaica and um, obviously my mom is Jamaican. And I feel like in our culture, you know, it's just, you just didn't talk about it. So I feel like I, I can't even answer that question as to when my mother was diagnosed, but I know that she not only lost two, one set of twins, but she lost two. So she lost four children due to complications with fibroids. And I came in the middle. And so I am an only child and I'm considered to her like her miracle baby. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't until I actually got my diagnosis and it was like, oh, oh, yeah, honey, like me too. That's why I lost the twins, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I, that's a good question I need to ask her. You know, when did she mm. get diagnosed? Did you also know what fibroids were by the time you were diagnosed? Because it sounds like there was an awareness in your family. How was that topic broached? How did you learn about what they were? So that's a, a great question. I, I don't feel like I was as versed as I could have been or should have been, knowing that there was a history in my family. You were a teenager. (laughs) Yeah, I was a teenager. And once again, it goes back to keeping it moving. My dad um, passed away when I was 13. And I think my mom was just so concerned in making sure that she maintained um, a normal life for me that, you know, like the period stuff, like, honey, we'll deal with that later. You know, like we need to get it. My dad died in our home 
And, you know, it was all about, we need to move. I need to get you stable. I want you to have a great high school career. So I literally kept it moving. And that's why I always talk about in my story how I really adapted my life to fibroids. Um, Because I didn't have the opportunity to go to multiple doctors, seek opinion. Like, I don't have time for that. Like, I have scholarship applications to fill out. You know what I mean? So I think for a long time, I just kept it on the back burner. And what's interesting about my mom is that instead of dealing with the diagnosis per se, she just always taught me how to not have accidents or to how to protect myself, right? So that's why I know, like, I can't wear a tampon. I've never worn a tampon in my life. Um, I know how to pad my underwear, like, every corner perfectly. Like, I just, like, I have tricks of the trade over here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And I, I think, in hindsight, like, I feel like if I were dealing with what's causing this, mom, let's talk about your experiences, then it might've put me in a better position, but I was just always on the, the preventative protection. And on the go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and just trying to, to not have an accident. So that's why I'm so versed on or keen on all these years. I have not worn white. You know what I mean? Like hmm. it, you just become very keen on the things that you have taken out of your life or the accommodations you've made because of of fibroids. Absolutely. And for people who are tuning in who are going, okay, you're talking about fibroids. Like I sort of know what they are, but can you, can you give people a little bit of a a rundown of what fibroids are so that they understand how serious a condition this is? Yeah, definitely. And, and when I, when I do this, you know, people always ask me and I always preface it. I am not a doctor. So please everyone make sure that you, you go to your doctor and make sure that you get accurate diagnosis and all that. Um, But fibroids are benign tumors that can grow in and around the woman's uterus. And it's important to designate that they are benign because, you know, people hear tumor and they get really nervous. Um, But even though they are not cancerous per se, they cause cause a host of issues. Um, So for me, I have had all the bulk symptoms of heavy bleeding, pain, um, because they literally grow in your uterus and take up that space, um, very similar to where a baby grows. Um, That's why there's often discussion around fertility and fibroids being connected, um, because they grow in the same place. And there's some discussion around them um, feeding off of estrogen. So they can grow at the same rate as a baby. And that's, that's in my mom's case, what happened to her. They basically suffocated the babies, which is so mm. sad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those benign tumors can cause all of those bulk symptoms. I think it is also important to uh, realize that you can have fibroids and not have those symptoms. So it's, mm. it's important to make that distinction, but have the growth so you can still have uh, heavy urination all the time. You can have a back pain, and it really depends on the positioning of the fibroids. Where they are kind of determines um, the symptoms that you have. Absolutely. And over time, you also need to get these removed, don't you? Because you can't be walking around with a growth that just keeps getting bigger and bigger, right? Exactly. That's why many times um, you'll see even on some of our social posts where we talk about women talking about them looking uh, pregnant because they grow in that same place in the uterus. And that's why you have those um, pregnant like symptoms. So, yeah, it's 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 important to make sure that you recognize those symptoms in your body and I always say hindsight is twenty twenty. but if I had known what I know now, I would have really started to journal more, recognize what's happening in my body, take a look at the irregularities in my period, um, look at my diet more, um, because, you know, all of those things contribute to overall healthy lifestyle. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking about your mom sort of tied into this experience because she also is someone who has lived with fibroids. And I wonder whether you leaned on her as an advocate by the time you got your diagnosis. Was she the person that you turned to for additional support? Yeah, so my mom is literally one of my best friends because she's an only child and I'm an only child. Mm. And then when my dad died, it was just the two of us, right? So she is um, a dear, just my heartbeat. And I talk to her every day, every other hour, like that's our relationship. However, your mother can only speak from her experience, right? And I think most mothers just want better for their child. So I think what my mom did, instead of probably giving me the real, real about fibroids, Mm. like I said, she was just like, okay, so this is how you never embarrass yourself. So it was always about this protection piece as opposed to being a health advocate. So how did that affect your relationship either with her or with your own body growing up? What was that like? Yeah, I just, that's such a good question. I feel like, I feel like looking back at it now, it had to have impacted me, right? Because I feel like I didn't get those tools. And if I don't have them, then I'm now trying to play catch up. And everybody has those moments where you feel like your parents could have, you know, instilled a little bit more in this area. Um, But she was just concentrated on making sure that I was well-rounded, that she did, she played the role of both parents and that I got a good education. So to her, like this health stuff, I don't, you know, she didn't want anything to happen to me. No, but it's secondary to your education and your upbringing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty generally the case, especially when you're young and healthy, relatively speaking as well. Yeah. And that's a tough one, isn't it? Because it it can be so fraught if you discover that you have a chronic illness. Um, So it's interesting, but it's, it's very fortunate that you and your mom are so close and it's, it's nice that you guys have remained close throughout yeah. this journey as well. And you've talked a lot about how you've spent a lot of time, you know, carrying your backpack, avoiding wearing white, you know, um, always knowing where to pad your underwear out and stuff when you're bleeding. So what's a typical day like for you when you're in the middle of a flare, when you've got active fibroids? How are you balancing the demands of work and life as you're managing your symptoms? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of um, really making sure that you're always showing up extra just in case something, you know, you have to call out sick the next day because you're in fetal position on the bathroom floor. You know what I mean? Um, I was telling someone the other day that sometimes when I'm in board meetings and I have my period, I'll let everybody else walk out. And, you know, obviously people are like, oh, come on, Tanika, let's go to lunch or, you know, what are you waiting for? And I'll just, you know, sit there on my computer because I'm not quite sure what's happening in my seat. And you can imagine that that feeling alone can be daunting. Um, you know, in my office, I always have an extra pair of clothes. Um, in my car, I always have an extra pair of clothes. So after a while, what does that do to your psyche? You know what I mean? And I, I, I used to think like, oh, Tanika, you're being so dramatic. Like, it's not that serious. But starting this organization and hearing from other patients and knowing that I'm not, you know, delusional, I really understand like the psychological impact that it's had on me. It, I look at every seat before I sit down. You know, I, I often talk about I've never bought a car with cloth seats yeah. because, you know, it's, it's those types of things that you just... Um, you're, you're thinking a step or two ahead. Exactly. Always, always. Yeah. And that goes back to my mom. You know, she, she always taught me that. And I think too, you know, as a woman, like you just never talk about issues below the belt. 
Like you don't. Right. I am on the let's talk about it brigade. <laughs> That's why we're here today. I mean, it's so fascinating to me because when you get talking, as you know, from starting the white dress project, when you start talking to people, everyone comes out of the woodwork with something. Oh, girl. Yes. I, everybody. Like, yeah. Um, sis, and, and the thing is, I think with fibroids, I found that when I started talking about it, it was like, oh yeah, girl, my mom, my aunt, my cousin, my sister, like sort of flippant. Exactly. Exactly. And I thought that was so troubling um, because I'm like, no, if this were a guy thing, like we'd have commercials and funding and legislation mm-hmm. and billboards. So I really, I really am so adamant about women sharing those types of those stories because if you don't know that I'm sitting in the boardroom waiting for you to leave because I don't know if I might have had an accident like Mm. people need to hear that this type of chronic condition has that type of impact and if we aren't sharing those stories then nobody knows what we're experiencing and you're living in shame exactly and that's where the shame and the stigma and the you know, taboo topic comes from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more we talk about this stuff, hopefully the less taboo it becomes. So right. this is a step in the in the right direction for sure. I mean, it's interesting because you talked about when you meet other women who are dealing with the similar condition, um, you know, that it, it's a validation, right? That yeah. like there are other people who are out there who are thinking the same way and having mm-hmm. the same sort of experience with their bodies. And I'm wondering, you know, between that realization and, and experiences like you had with the doctor who offered you a DNC without thinking to diagnose you. Have you been confronted and forced to justify the existence of your condition to people who couldn't see it and didn't believe that it was happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say um, not so much because they couldn't see it, um, but just because they didn't believe that it was as severe as I was making it out to be. I definitely feel like I've had to justify to doctors how heavy my bleeding is and how debilitating it is and how I literally feel like I can't get up out the bed and them not understanding um, how serious that was. Um, I remember after I got married, I went to a doctor to deal with my fibroids and he did an examination, just a pelvis exam, no, um, no ultrasound or anything like that. And he said to me, um, you know, just forget it. You probably won't be a mom. I don't even like to repeat it, but you probably won't be a mom. Your uterus is way too compromised. (sighs) Um, You might as well just get a surrogate. And you can imagine. He just said that flippantly to you? Yes. And a male doctor too, man. Yeah, exactly. And that, um, that is, you know, was disturbing within itself because I had just gotten married and what woman wants to hear that, whether you want children or not, you know, and it was so devastating to me. And it was shortly after that, that I, um, found the doctor who did my first surgery. But I feel like many times I have had to justify my pain. I have had to justify the amount I was bleeding. I have had doctors tell me, you know, well, how many times are you changing your pad? Which I understand is a, um, you know, a good marker for identifying heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, But sometimes I felt like they were almost asking as if, you know, are you a germaphobe? Like maybe you just, you know, maybe you just don't like to see blood all the way on, on all the pad. And I'm like, Mm. what, you know? So I feel like I've been in those situations, um, starting the organization and trying to explain the condition to, um, male legislators, um, has also been difficult. I've had many, uh, legislators tell me that I need to group fibroids with uterine cancer. Excuse me? Yes. Yes. What? Because they're scientists? (laughs) Do they know the uterus better? What the? Wow. Right. And I think it was just when I've heard that, you know, I just think it's so telling of, um, you know, the ideology that if you're not dying from something, 
then maybe it just doesn't have as much weight. And I would mm-hmm. argue that there are many women who have had myomectomies and died from complications. Like anytime you go into any type of surgery, there are risks. Um, any doctor, you know, would probably agree with me that having seven bl- blood transfusions is not a-okay either. You know what I mean? So there are risks with any chronic disease that I think more people need to recognize that these things can be debilitating. Yeah. And let's not even talk about the financial impact. You know, like when you're thinking about if a woman is bleeding that much, like how many pads does she have to buy? You know, how many tampons Mm -hmm. does she have to buy? Pink tax. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yes, to answer Mm. your question, yes, absolutely. I have had to justify what is happening. Mm. And I think that one more thing I want to say on that point is I've always been, you know, pretty slim. Mm-hmm. And when I've had the protruding belly, you know, it's always been like, oh my goodness, you ate too much, you know, dinner or, you know, it's, it's always that. It's written off. Un- exactly. Yeah. And I'm wondering also with some of these doctors who haven't taken you seriously and these legislators, you know, what about this issue, you know, how much of that prejudice that you've encountered, how much of that misunderstanding that you've encountered do you think was related to being a woman? And how much do you think it was related to being a woman of color? Because I'm wondering about how that's a, how medical bias is affecting the care that you've received and the care that many of the women who you've met through the organization have received as well. Because we know that fibroids, from what I understand, are a condition that affect women of color a little bit more frequently but yeah. I'm wondering about how treatment is then reflected back, given the fact that we know that there's inherent racism in the medical system. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, Black women are disproportionately affected with fibroids. Our fibroids grow larger. Um, we have more, uh, we're more symptomatic than white women. And our treatment options um, were often offered hysterectomy as a first option, much more than white women. In general, those are what the stats are. And again, this is like, let's jump to the hysterectomy because we're undervaluing black lives. Exactly. Uh, You know, and immediately jumping to a solution that requires no longer term care. So we're going, it's the exact same thing that's happening with diabetes in this country, with so many other conditions that are affecting communities of color. Um, disproportionately as well, as you mentioned. And I want everyone who's listening to understand that like, this is, it's not just a black woman's problem. This is all of our problem as well. This is a system that's reflecting back and affecting women of color in this way, then it's all of our problem. Exactly. And it, and it is a health disparity for black women um, in particular And as it specifically relates to fibroids, um, Black women have been diagnosed at earlier ages, are more likely to be symptomatic, and are likely to have different responses to medical treatment. So that's also related to bias, but also gaps in our understanding. So in research, this is also racism in research because Black women aren't being studied as much. So we have no idea what the results are going to be. Exactly. And that is why I think at our organization, we are so adamant about making sure that at least the first step is that our stories are being told, right? So let's get our stories on the record so that those anecdotes can be used for research. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we need to participate in clinical trials. We need to speak up. We need to participate in studies. And I understand, most definitely, as a Black woman, historically, and sometimes I say historically, and I'm like, historically and present day. Mm-hmm. Um, Not much has changed. Exactly. What our health disparities are and what the gaps are. Um, so I understand that fear in participating, you know, we can name them all, Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks. Um, but I Jay also Marion Sims testing on Black women. To exactly. Gynecology, yeah. Right. 
Um, but I also say that it is imperative that we are participatory in these studies and clinical trials, because if we don't, then we're not counted. Our stories aren't heard and treatment plans for us aren't developed. Like if, if, if 80% of black women will have fibroids by the time they're 50 and, and let's just be clear, not all of them will be symptomatic. Hmm. Like there's something to be said about that. If we are getting them at higher rates, they're larger, they're more symptomatic than white women, then there's something to be said about that. I, I love the fact that you said this is, this is something that affects all women because 70% of white women as well um, will have some type of fibroid by the time they're 50. But it should, that shouldn't change the fact that we should give a damn <laughs> either, right? Exactly. Like, that's part of this discussion too. That's like men should be listening and caring about this. You know, exactly. no matter who you are, this, this is an issue that's affecting your fellow human beings. Give a right. damn. Exactly, exactly. And that was bringing it back to the legislators. That's always been my response to them. Oh, okay. So we'll, we'll deal with that when your sister and your mom and your wife. And once you yeah. phrase it like that, it's, it's almost like a, okay, so what's the statistic again? You know, like then they all, all of a sudden become interested. Um, but yeah. And how many times to, do you also have to learn how to speak their language? Like when, when right. are they going to learn how to speak women's language? When are they going to learn exactly. to speak? You know, like that's the interesting power dynamic there too, isn't it? Because it's the prevailing narrative is old white man. Exactly. So that's why, you know, not to get too far off topic, but we got to vote. We got to run. We got to support yes. people, you know, who are women who can understand. And I, and I also think that it's not that they can't understand. They're just not invested in understanding, right? So mm -hmm. that's why at the level that we are at, what we're doing is making sure that our stories are getting out there because literally that is the first step. I remember speaking at the Georgia House um, early last year. And um, after I spoke, the legislator came up to me and he said, you were so powerful. That was so dynamic. And anything that I can do so that my granddaughter doesn't have to go through this, let's make it happen. So forget about, you know, my story, seven blood transfusions. He rightly was like, yeah, all of that is great. But and this listen. is a big deal. Exactly. And I don't want my granddaughter to go through it. So, I, you know, I understand that too. So however we have to... Um, make the story relatable is, is fine with me. If that's the biggest hurdle we have to go through that allows them to comprehend the issue that we are dealing with, hmm. then I'm fine with that. Um, but I just want them to listen and yeah. I want them to care and not feel like this has to be grouped. Um, mm, with an unrelated condition. With an, well, you don't want it to be grouped with an unrelated condition, but also one that is far more deadly, you know, exactly. statistics where this is something that can be treated over time. Exactly. And I shouldn't have to rank my conditions. Like I shouldn't have to be competing um, yeah. with someone who has, and, and obviously, you know, neither of us are saying that cancer patients aren't going through their own. Oh, no, uh, no, no. We're not saying it's not important. We're just saying this is different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, cancer is one of those interesting ones too, because it's something that's so universally well-funded, well-known, well-understood, right. you know, right. on some levels. Um, and it's often a, a point of comparison when we're talking about other conditions. And that's the whole point this podcast exists. You know, obviously we have cancer patients on the show too, but we're looking at these other conditions that have heretofore been far less funded, far less popular uh, in, yeah. in, in popular discourse. Um, you know, so these stories are getting lost and that's, that's exactly why we need to, as you say, keep telling these stories, keep collecting these stories so that people can hear these firsthand accounts and understand the gravity of these situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we strive to do at the White Dress Project. Um, and, and I think even with the dealing with getting people to listen, there's also a hurdle that we have to cross as women and getting the courage, strength, whatever you want to call it, to share our stories, right? There, there are so many uh, fibroids groups that are out there. 
and I guess they call themselves like support groups. They're not necessarily patient advocacy like we are, um, but thousands of women. And I'll go in them and I'll say, hey, this is what we're doing. And I'll get so many DMs like, oh, is this a private page? Um, I can DM you my story and, you know, you and I can be friends, but, you know, I don't want to put it out there publicly. And I feel like anything that is 80% of anything is a lot of women. So it's like, I, I but it's because it. it's below the belt, right? It's that right. Whole, the taboo associated with that. And people don't want people to know, like it's a private. Right. And look for some people, having their close friends and loved ones know the story is enough for some people yeah. not telling their story is their way of dealing with it. But right. as you say, the way we're going to affect change is to bring the wave of stories, the 80% out of the exactly. woodwork so that people understand the, the breadth of this exactly. situation too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely not knocking privacy. I, I completely get that. Um, I think my point is that we have to understand that the stigma needs to be removed from this. And I have found that through sharing my story, I've really gotten to my healing. Yes. Um, I'm still on my journey with fibroids. I'm still currently living with fibroids even after two myomectomies. Wow. And I'm still on my fertility journey even after going through two IVF cycles. Wow. So this is like real life for me every day. So, you know, to your point, nope, we're not knocking privacy and we're not knocking however you get supported. Um, but I just want to put out there that it's so important to share because it definitely is connected to your healing and it often supports so many other women. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think that's so true. I want to get back into your advocacy work in a minute, but I want to stay on healthcare while we're on it. Um, Because, you know, given your experience, what we're talking about, we're talking about um, racism and bias in the system. Um, In what ways are you seeing the healthcare system that we have here in the U.S. working for fibroid patients. And aside from what we've discussed about, you know, gaps in research uh, and, you know, particular practitioners maybe not being the right fit, in what ways is the healthcare system that we've designed here in the U.S. not working for patients? You know, like what are the pluses and minuses of the system as a whole right now? Just, you know, sort of bullet points from your point of view. Yeah, I'm not sure, um, Lauren, if I have a lot of bullet points that I can say are Then go into detail. (laughs) Well, oh yeah, then who cares about the the positives? Honestly, like this is the interesting thing is like part of the reason I asked that question is that some people have nothing good to say because they've had bad experiences. And I think that's important to reflect in your story. So please share what feels necessary. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm definitely not, you know, a healthcare basher or anything like that. But I just think we have a lot of work to do in that area. Um, We've already spoken about the disparities and we talk about them. We list the statistics and then everybody's kind of goes radio silent. Like there's nothing to be said after that. So we have to deal with the disparities. We have to deal with the gaps. Um, And I think that an important thing that we need to do that I don't know if some people would even categorize as, is it a negative in the healthcare arena? But I really feel like we need to redefine what the patient-doctor relationship is like. Yes, the power dynamic. Yeah, this idea that like the white coat is like angelic, like, I mean, I get it. Like, I didn't go to medical school, right? And I respect... Um, every doctor that does and every doctor who goes into it to truly help people. Um, But this idea that, you know, I don't want to seek a second opinion because I may get my doctor upset. Like, I just don't get that, those types of ideologies. Mm -hmm. And I want us to dismiss them. Like, you know, we, we can't tell people what to do, but I want you to do that one. Well, and it's the idea of shifting the power dynamic from us working for the system to the system working for us. Working for us. Absolutely. And I feel like if we, like I said earlier, become partners with our doctors, right. Then we understand that, 
okay, I've gotten this diagnosis. This is what you um, are able to do. This is what you've studied. This is what you have your certification for. But that's not the route I want to go. So then, then what are you going to do? And that's why we also promote at the White Dress Project being your own best health advocate. Like at the end of the day, nobody is going to care like you care. No one knows the intricacies of your body like you do. Um, so once we go into partnership with our doctors, then it doesn't become this like allegiance. We can't let go whatever they, well, they said I needed surgery, but is it, there are always other options and availabilities. And, and granted, sometimes surgery is the best option, right? But the idea is that you become a participant, you become a partner, you become completely invested in how, how this whole thing is going to go down. I, the, the doctor I told you about previously who told me, you know, just forget about it. Go ahead and figure out how you're going to pay for a surrogate. Like what I realized Mm. about him is that he was a visiting doctor to the hospital where I was at the doctor's appointment. He was from a rural part of Georgia. Mm. And in his defense, he had just never seen a uterus my size. Mm. He had never heard of this type of bleeding. So I have to be abnormal. I have to be some, like, you're the rare patient. Mm. Um, so he spoke to what he knew and that's the thing that we try to tell patients all the time. Like doctors sometimes only speak to what they can do because they don't want to lose you. They, you know, good doctors won't say this, but they don't want to lose you. They don't want you going anywhere else. Just get on their schedule, get it done. Um, so yeah, that we could talk about some some other negative things, bias, unconscious bias. Um, yesterday I, you know, was talking with one of my board members, and I told her that you know at this point in my health journey, I really only seek out black female doctors, and Fair she enough. talked. Yeah, and that's because it's been my experience, right? White males just have not worked for me. White female doctors just have not worked for me. I haven't yeah. been able to build a relationship. I haven't been able to feel like um, they get me, I get them. Mm. So at this point in my health journey, that's who I want. I want a Black female OBGYN. Yeah. And like I said, I was talking to my board member, and she talked about the fact that she's had um, issues or it felt like her black female doctor was very condescending and she's a black woman. Right. So we have all these types of bias, unconscious bias. And we really, that's why choosing a doctor is such an individual experience. Right. Um, So, yeah. And I think that's also about giving, but please do. I mean, I think that's also about giving women permission to seek caregivers who look like them in the mirror, who understand their experiences. Absolutely. Because they're representative of those experiences too. Exactly. Exactly. So if 80% of black women will have some type of fibroid by the time they're 50 and you are a black woman, chances are you might be one of them, sister. You know what I mean? So yeah. that, Or you know them. That, you know people who have that going exactly, on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So like I said, it has worked for me. And I go into all of my doctors with my journal, with my medical records. This is not just something you get to keep in a file folder. No, this is my life. I have all my medical records in my file folder in my office. So I go to them like, oh, okay. So when they measured them last time, here's what was going on. So I'm not quite sure how you got this. And, and that's the conversation that we have. And, and like I always say, it is not to disrespect any doctor. It is not to not respect their level of education, pedigree, all of that. That's all good and well. But I got to do it for me. I got to take care of me. Yes. You're the CEO of you. I am the CEO of me. I love that. Mm-hmm. I am the CEO of me. And I know that there are a lot of doctors, especially the ones on our advisory council, that talk about that all the time. 
and they talk about like I love it when patients are like go get a second opinion because they're good doctors but, <laughs> because they're good doctors right but the yeah. but the sad reality is that like anything else there are those doctors who will not show that level of care and you just got to keep it moving like we said earlier she's not the one yeah absolutely but i really like that you take that approach in yeah. terms of finding a caregiver, you're looking for someone who can understand your experience. You're looking for someone who won't have the same kind of inherent biases that so many other practitioners might. And you're looking for someone who is also someone you get along with, that you have yep. sort of a rapport, a, a rapport with. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So true. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. Let's dig into more of the work you're doing and what you've just had passed through uh, through Congress. So talk to me about the White Dress Project, about all of the initiatives that you guys are working toward to continue creating awareness around these conditions. Yeah, we're so excited because, you know, our board is made up of women who are all patients. One of our board members just had her second myomectomy three weeks ago. So we are like in this work every day. This is not something that is behind us. We are constantly checking in on each other about new doctors. What did the doctor tell you? So we're we're truly a family and a group of women who really want to support women because we understand what it's like to A, suffer in silence and feel alone and feel like you have to still show up every day and nobody gets it when you don't show up. Um, So that's what we've tried to create. That's the environment we've tried to create at the White Dress Project. We've really tried to allow women to understand that you don't have to suffer in silence you need to be your own best health advocate and your story leads to your healing. Because um, I, also, I work in the media and I understand how important getting in front of legislators um, to get to try and you know, get funding and advocacy work done. So one of the first things we did was write legislation to get July declared as Fibroids Awareness Month. And we are yes. like, yay! We're and like, this is national? So, yes, yes, yes. I love that. Amazing. Yes. Um, through the U.S. House. Um, and we're so excited about that. And we're working with other organizations um, like Black Women's Health Imperative to get um, education and research legislation done because that's a part of um, the gap that we talked about earlier, right? So why are Black women... Um, getting, you know, being offered hysterectomies more. Like what is, what is happening? What is the conversation? And And how do we keep calling that out? How do we keep calling the BS? Exactly. Calling the BS out. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's our legislative side. And we have, um, you know, gotten a lot of traction on that. We've gotten a lot of um, conversations going. and, And like I alluded to earlier, some tough conversations where, you know, we don't feel like we have to justify why appropriations should be there for fibroids and why NIH or the Office of Women's Health should carve out uh, more, re- not carve out, but have more research other than the generic definitions. You know what I mean? Like, why can't we have campaigns? Why aren't there initiatives? Why aren't more people talking? Um, so that's what we do in our little corner of the world. We try to make sure that that is happening and it's happening often. I love that. And I'm so excited about July being national fibroid awareness month. I mean, this is a really big deal. Um, and I, and I also love that you're working with black women's health initiative. What an amazing, uh, organization as well. So like what great partnerships, it's amazing what happens when women come together, isn't it? (laughs) We change the world when we come together. So true. And I'm so excited to, to watch what you guys continue to build together. So we're, we're sort of sliding into the end here of our interview and I like to wrap up. I know I'm having so much fun talking to you, but I, I, I like to wrap up with a couple of top three lists. And to start, I wanted to ask you what your top three tips are for someone who maybe they suspect something's off with their period. Maybe they already have a diagnosis of fibroids. What would you recommend for someone who's living that fibroid life like you are? Yeah, I would recommend um, a couple things. Um, I feel I'm such an advocate for uh, therapy and yes. making 
Yes. Right. Yes. Thank you for saying that first. (laughs) Yeah. In order of importance. This is a very important one. Yes. Exactly. If you hear nothing else that I say, please know that I am an advocate for therapy. I feel like the mental health component plays such a big role in how all of this goes down and how we deal with it. I remember there was a a very low point I had gotten to um, after my first IVF cycle failed. And, you know, it was like, well, maybe it's because of your first fibroid surgery, you know, inflammation and scarring and all of that. And you just become like mad, like, what are these things in my body that's causing all this havoc? Yeah, I didn't order this. This is defective. Yeah. Exactly. That nobody really cares about that, you know, what is all of this? And you tend to feel like you almost don't have control of your body. And that became very debilitating to me. And once I started to get to that point where I realized I was constantly being sad or mad or just low about what I felt like my body was doing to me, I realized that I needed to get help. Um, Because I'm, you know, like I'm super social. I'm like girly girl. I'm like the girl that goes to everybody's brunches, right? Mm. And when I realized that I no longer wanted to do that, I realized because I felt like, I don't know, if I go out, who knows what will happen. So yeah, that, that was very important to me to make sure that I got a hold of that because I didn't want it to get any worse. And I, and I understood, um, that, you know, I, this is out of your control. You, you know, there's nothing you can do about it per se. This is just your, you know, your journey in life. But then you go to the other side, like, why, why does this have to be, um, So yeah, I say all of that to say that I got to that point, I realized I had to do something about it, and I did something about it. And it has really been a pivotal changing uh, Mm. moment in my life and and has allowed me to to deal with this. Um, The second thing I will say is I started this organization because I wanted somebody like me. I wanted somebody to be like, you go girl, you could do this. I know what it's like to feel like you got to bring 50 pads with you on a date. Like (laughs) I get it when you feel like you can't even spend the night at his house because you don't know. Um, So I wanted me and when I didn't see it, I created it. And I'm not telling everybody that they have to go and start an organization. But sometimes when I scroll Instagram and I see like all the patient advocates you know, I just met um, this young lady called um, Splash of Lyme. And oh, she yeah. Lyme. Yeah, Courtney. Yeah. Yeah. She, she has Lyme disease. And I just love it when when uh, patients feel empowered to share that story. Yes. So I'm not suggesting that you have to start a nonprofit because it's a lot of work. <laughs> However, I do suggest finding your tribe. You know what I mean? Like finding the group that will lift you up, that will support you and truly understands what you're going through and, and not people who will just give you lip service. Um, the third thing dealing with fibroids, I would say is finding a good health team, right? Mm -hmm. So that, and and these people work for me, right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) They work for me, honey. So I have my therapist, and then I have my OBGYN, and then I have my uh, dietitian, and then I have my uh, general practitioner. Like you all work for me. So how, mm-hmm. what's going on? How are we? Be that what, CEO. Exactly. What's the plan? Mm-hmm. What What are we doing and how are we working in tandem? I even, I go to an acupuncturist, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, there's, there's this whole conversation about, you know, diet and, and nutrition and acupuncture and that holistic world. So you're, and like, I you're kinda, combining the, the integrated exactly. functional and the traditional Western. You're, you're really doing complementary therapies there. Exactly. And for me, that has proven beneficial. And, and for a long, long time, I really didn't believe that that was how things were done. 
because my doctor never told me about acupuncture. But once again, it goes back to that idea that you have to seek things out for yourself. And now when I I go and and they're like, oh, yeah, acupuncture is great. And I'm like, sis. (laughs) But <laughs> like, and it's like the oldest form of medicine as well. Exactly. Like, why aren't we talking about this more? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so creating that, you know, medical board of directors who work for you and who are invested in making sure that your health journey is what you want it to be. And, and that depends on, you know, whether you want a family, whether you don't want a family, whether you want, um, you know, your parts or not like it's all up to you and nobody can determine for you what you what you uh desire that's an important note actually especially for black women who are tuning into this episode because if you have fibroids and you've only been offered a hysterectomy maybe go get a second opinion right Yes. Not even maybe girl run. Go, run. Yes. Go. Yeah. Because there is a hysterectomy are... even a cure as well? Like, can you still develop fibroids even if you have your uterus removed? So the idea is that once they are, once your uh, uterus is removed, that likely, most likely they will not come back because that is the area that they grow. So if you yeah. remove the area, then, you know, but endometriosis is like, I mean, some of these conditions, yeah. they're so insidious and you're still, you yeah. still might get gross. Like none of these are a hundred percent a cure. So you might as well do exactly. management exactly. strategies instead. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, even with a hysterectomy, there are other things that are coming with that, right? There, we have oh someone God, on yeah. our board who's, yeah, who's had a hysterectomy and there, there are a host of other things that come with that. Um, that's a so, lifetime yeah. of balancing your hormones and dealing exactly. with the fallout from that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, your personal board, medical board of directors is so important. Therapy is so important. Finding your tribe is so important. Mm-hmm. And um, the last thing I'll say is kind of going to the climate where we are. Um, we really, you all how should I say, we really all have to do the internal work, right? We have to do the internal work to eliminate our bias. We have to do the internal work to allow ourselves to feel worthy, to know that we should be our own best health advocate. Like sometimes I'm, I'm kind of like, why do we have to shout that from the mountaintops? But it's, it's because all of us aren't there yet. And that's okay. Cause I'm here to say it, but I want us to understand our worth in that way. I want us to understand that, no, this has to be a partnership because this is my body. Right. And you have the medical knowledge. I get it, but I live with me every day. Yeah. And I think that we just, we just got to get there. And so, so that's the last thing I'll say. Those are my top, top four. Do the work. Um, Do the work. Yeah. In, in every aspect. Right. And, and I think right now, if there's so many like, uh, points where people are saying like, you know, reach out and make sure that, but you got to want to reach out. So Mm -hmm. you have to want to do this in type of internal work first before you can impact anyone. And yeah. I feel like for me, starting this organization was a part of that because I recognized that I didn't want to share and I just learned how to protect myself, but not really how to be an advocate for myself. And once I realized that that was the issue, that gave me the courage and the impetus to start the organization. Because I realized that I really had to do it for me. Like I really had to do it for my healing. And once you get to that place, uh, it's like a game changer. I feel like my therapist would be very proud of me right now. I know. I was like, this is all your very good emotional work that you've done, you know, clearing those cobwebs, right? Like, I mean, this is, it's so much to do with where you're at mentally with this stuff. And, you know, I I like that you're sort of wrapping up there with doing the work because doing the work isn't just about supporting black women with fibroids, you know, that's an actionable step you can take today, you know, if you want to go and support an organization that supports black women. You can go and look up the white dress project and we're going to share contact information at the end of this interview. But, you know, it's also, as you say, about continuing to do the work. I mean, this is something that 
you know, here I am the white host of a show where I feel the need to represent a very broad range of voices that actually represent what chronic illness looks like. Um, because it affects more than just white people who, by the way, are the most willing to tell their stories, you know? So it is about making it okay for everyone to tell their story and being open to hearing these other stories and being open to these other experiences of the world, because your experience isn't the only one. Absolutely. And I, I really must say that I'm grateful for people who understand that like yourself, um, and who understand. look, it's a constant work in progress, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing, Lauren, we all are right. Yeah. But once we acknowledge it, that is a part of getting to the better place, like the acknowledgement of it. So I definitely am grateful and thankful for the opportunity to chat with you and you having a genuine, uh, concern and a genuine interest in my story and the story of other you know, women who are like me. Um, so I just applaud the work that you're doing. Um, and I applaud the work you're doing. We can have a mutual appreciation applause. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's so important. Um, and look, I've got one more question to ask you because this is sort of a fun one since we've now decided that we're going to brunch when I meet you in person one of these days. Um, (laughs) I want to know, this is another top three list, top three things that give you unbridled joy. So let's get into the joy as we wrap things up. I want to know things that you're totally unwilling to compromise on. This can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences. It can be comfort activities. If you're in a flare, you know, what are the top three things in your life that set you on fire, that light you up? Yeah. Ooh. So this sort of thing lights me up. I get so excited about the opportunity to share my story and to hear other people's story. Now I'm a journalist by trade. So I I guess it's always kind of been in me. I've known, I wanted to be a journalist since I was like seven years old (laughs) while everybody was like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I was like, well, I'll interview you. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. Um, So I guess I just am really attracted to uh, storytelling and sharing my story and hearing the stories of others and really getting to what makes people tick. I guess that's why I like to uh, converse with my girlfriends and go out and because I feel like that is where you have the opportunity to really connect with people and see what they're made of. So that honestly, as corny as that sounds. That no, I don't think so that's corny because it makes me tick in the same way. So oh, I, good. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another thing when I'm in, you know, like a flare moment, really feeling down, um, reality TV is yeah. like, trash television. Oh There's nothing God. like it. It's my guilty pleasure. I should, my husband would be so mad at me. He's always like, <laughs> babe, what are you feeding your mind? <laughs> trash. Um, trash is what I'm feeding It's it. like <laughs> trash and it's like... But um, it is part so- of story, isn't it? Sometimes you need to see another story and let it get ridiculous to put your own in perspective. Oh, Lauren, I'm about to use that all the time. <laughs> that's that a great is- way to justify watching yeah. crashy reality TV to your husband. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Um, what else gives me joy? I absolutely love to travel in groups. Mm. Um, so travel, yeah. Traveling is a big thing for me. Like I love to go with my husband, but I also like to just get like a group of friends together. Um, this past weekend, we just uh, got back from camping Ooh. and it was so good because, you know, Corona has just like shut the world down. Yeah. Um, so for travelers like me, I'm just like, when are we going to get to travel? But it was, it was, <laughs> you, so you can good. just use a virtual background on zoom. That'll take you to the right. beach. Well, then there's that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I love to travel hmm. and, um, and we got camping this weekend. So just getting out and being with nature and just hanging yeah. out, it was like the best. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are my top three. And oh, I love to shop. I'm a <laughs> You're a girl after my own heart. <laughs> yes, I'm a shopper, honey. Brunch, like, shop. Maybe I won't come for the camping, but I will brunch and shop with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was thinking like, I'm so not like a camper, but I was a Girl Scout. So I feel like mm. it was kind of in me, but You're I'm prepared. such like a I, right? <laughs> I'm such a girly girl that I was like, I don't know. 
camping as an adult, but we had the best time. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. so awesome. Oh, that's yeah. really great. And look, maybe this time you didn't have to bring a backpack full of pads, right? But well, I'm sure I there are those experiences. Wow. I did. I did. And it's so crazy that you say that because I thought about it the whole way because it's like, you know, you're, you're coming on a camping trip. It was only a couple of days. So it's like, you don't want to overpack, right? So you don't want to walk in and you're the girl with like three bags. Mm. Um, so it's so interesting that you say that because I did come with it. Um, but that's cause you've also done the work to remove the shame for yourself in a lot of ways too. Right. Right. But like you said earlier, it's still a work in progress. Yeah. Cause I still thought about it and I still made sure that I brought like my non-transparent backpack, you know, so mm-hmm. that like, you know, so it's, it's still like I'm fibroid girl and I'm like patient advocate, rah, rah, rah. But then I still have those moments, you know what I mean? Where I'm like, well, yeah, let's not, you know. You're still human. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was starting the organization, my mom was like so proud of me. But she said, um, she said, well, honey, don't tell everybody that you had 27 fibroids removed. And I remember being like, but why? Because it's true. And, you know, I'm not sure what she said, but it's just still that, like, stigma. It's still there. And I still think of her every time I write a post that has period or blood or pad in it. I'm like, let me block her. (laughs) Let me me block her from this post. Anyone but close friends. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone but mommy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So it's. I still have those moments is, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the point here is that it's okay to falter. It's okay to be imperfect. You know, like all yeah. of this is a work in progress. And, you know, if anyone takes anything away today, it's that. But also support Black women. Support yes. Black women who have fibroids. Absolutely. You know, like like support yes. your community. Support people. Um, Absolutely. Be human. Be human. Be kind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now tell everyone where they can find the white dress project. And oh, yes, 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 yes. So, um, on Facebook, we are the white dress project on Instagram. We are at we can wear white and on Twitter, we are at we can underscore wear white and our website is the white dress project.org. Perfect. And we'll link to all of this on the webpage for the episode. So guys log on to uninvisiblepod.com and check out the latest episode for details there as well. And links, um, Tanika, it's been such an honor speaking to you. What a joy, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. One, just one last thing I want to say, July is fibroids awareness month. Um, we'll have a whole campaign on it so you can see it. Any of our social media channels, we'll be rolling that out pretty soon. So just stay connected with the, stay connected with us and support us and we'll be eternally grateful. I love it. Thank you so much, Tanika. Thank you, Lauren. Talk soon. Yes. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.